So we are in the series called Ignite. We're looking at the, the last book of the Old Testament. It's not in our order, the Bibles that we have. It's not the last book, but in the Jewish order, the way they had it, it was the last book. And it's kind of this summary book that was written to offer sort of a summary of the whole story to that point, but also it was written to kind of stir people. The nation of Israel was kind of flat. After the exile, they'd come back. They were in the land. Everything just was kind of there. You know, the temple was small. The response was small. It wasn't the golden age they were expecting. And Chronicles, this uh, great book, goes from Adam right the way through to their day. And it's designed to focus the people of Judah, the people of the southern kingdom, on the temple and on God and on God's promises and, and the beauty of it as a book is that two chronicles, the, the section we're looking at, which is the second half, focuses in on times of revival, times where there was a real spark of life among God's people and the, the normal uh, kind of operations of God's work just went fast forward. Same thing as normal, but just much more intense, fast forward, people being responsive, things happening, and potentially uh, there is the, the, the possibility for us to get jealous as, you, as we read through two chronicles. Okay, so we're, we're kind of working our way through the book and not dealing with every single page, but we're looking at a lot of it. We're certainly not missing any of the revivals. And the one we're going to look at today is fascinating. It's the one that comes uh, after the ones we've seen before, funnily enough. So we've, we've seen Solomon's life, then we had Jeroboam, then we skipped Abijah, and then there was Asa, and now we've got Asa's son, Jehoshaphat. So this week, I was chatting with one of my older daughters, and she said, what are you preaching on Sunday, Dad? And I said, I'm preaching Jehoshaphat. And then one of my younger daughters, who's about six, said, oh, Jehoshaphat's very interesting. That wasn't the response I was expecting. So I turned to her, and I said, oh, really? Can you, can you give me the main idea of the life of Jehoshaphat? That would be super helpful at this point in my preparation. And she said, well, every children's Bible storybook that I look in, he's always thin. That was it. <laughs> I was like, well, that's, that's insightful. Thank you. Uh, but thankfully, we're not going to talk about body you know, issues or anything like that. We're, we're, we're going to think about Jehoshaphat because we've got four chapters in the middle of two chronicles that give us uh, a, a perspective on this man that is super helpful. And here's the thing. Ignore whether he's large or small. We do not know. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't tend to tell us much about the body weight of the characters. But what we do know about Jehoshaphat was that he's someone a lot like us. He was someone who was a bit of a mixed bag. He did some good things and he did some bad things. When he did bad things, he needed to be kind of rebuked and pushed back into line to do the right things again. And so he was a man that needed to learn from his mistakes. Anybody else here that needs to learn from their mistakes? Anybody else here who keeps making the same mistakes? Well, yeah, good. It's not just me. So Jehoshaphat is, is, is I, I find him fascinating because he's not kind of put on a pedestal as this superhero. Neither is he kind of pure evil. He's this kind of mixture of, of he wants to live for God. He tries to do the right thing, but then he kind of messes up. And, and, and it's, it's fascinating to go through that. Another thing that we can connect with Jehoshaphat about is that in chapter 20, verse 3, it says Jehoshaphat was afraid. And even though we may not be in his circumstances, uh, fear is a very real feeling. 
It could be, for us, fear in relation to something medical or something financial or something relational. It could be fear in terms of uh, joblessness or in terms of kind of that feeling of, is this it? Is this what I'm here for? There could be fear coming from doubts and insecurities. There's all sorts of reasons why we may struggle with fear. And Jehoshaphat was a man who was afraid. And we're going to see why. Before we get to chapter 20, which is really where we're going to focus, I just want to run us through the previous three chapters. If we had an hour and a half, we could just walk our way through and it would be fascinating, but I'll just kind of summarize it for you. Okay, chapter 17, Jehoshaphat starts really, really well. He tears the altars down. Remember, there's this thing in in, in Israel before the exile, they had this tendency to just go back to the idolatry and to worship other gods. Jehoshaphat tore that down. In fact, not only did he tear that down, he replaced it with something. He sent out Bible teachers. How cool is that? Like he had an army of Bible teachers going out and teaching people God's word. That's amazing. That's unusual, sadly, in the Old Testament. And so he seems to be doing remarkably well. Then you come to chapter 18, and we're told at the beginning of chapter 18 that he formed an alliance with the northern kingdom. So his, I think it was his daughter or son, whatever, married the offspring of the king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was in Judah in the south. Israel was in the north. Alliances were the way to do life and business in that part of the world at that time. If you kind of marry your family into another royal family, then you don't tend to have a war with those people. It's kind of human wisdom, good idea. And so very, very common. In God's way of thinking, it's not a great idea at all. It's basically saying, rather than trusting God, I'm going to trust in my ability to orchestrate my circumstances. Next thing we know, uh, he's hanging out with the king of Israel. Now, the king of Israel you may have heard of, he was a man called Ahab. Ahab was evil. He really was kind of the worst of the worst. He was someone who had no regard for God, who didn't honor God at all. And now Jehoshaphat is hanging out, chit-chatting and snacking with Ahab. And so Ahab said, well, I'm, I'm going into this battle. Would you join me? And Jehoshaphat is kind of bound to join him. He's in this, uh, I suppose you could call it an unequally yoked situation. The Bible talks about not being unequally yoked, where you have uh, two people where one is, is trying to live for the Lord and the other one is not. They're going to pull in different directions. It's going to create tension. It's going to be difficult. We think of that in business. We think of that in terms of marriage. Here, it's in terms of, of a king with another king, but they're pulling in different directions. And so Jehoshaphat says the right thing. He says to Ahab, can you, why don't you inquire of the Lord? That's a, that's a good idea. Remember our whole history and, you know, your nation and my nation and how we used to be one nation and God made the nation and God, yeah. Can you inquire of the Lord? And so Ahab inquires of the Lord. He calls his 400 prophets who all say the right thing because they're kind of paid to do so. And they all say, yeah, go to war. It's going to go great. But it seems like Ahab is uncomfortable with this. He knows that these are the yes men, that they always say the right thing. They don't say the truth. They say what he wants to hear. And so then he says, there's this one other person, Micaiah. I hate Micaiah. 
He, he just reports evil to me all the time. Like he's just a thorn in my flesh, a pain in the neck. And, and there is Micaiah. So he sends from Micaiah. And the person who goes to get Micaiah says, Micaiah, the king wants you to prophesy. Uh, would you mind just saying what the others are saying? It would just make things a whole lot easier if you would. And Micaiah is like, no, I'm going to say what God tells me to say because Micaiah is a cool guy. And so he comes before Ahab and and to begin with, it sounds like he's kind of gone the other way. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, go to war. You're going to win. But I think it's sarcastic, ironic or something, because Ahab knows that that's not the truth. He says, come on, stop messing me around. You're such a pain. Just tell me the truth. And so he says, okay, I'll tell you the truth. The nation of Israel is going to be like sheep without a shepherd because you're going to die. And then they're all going to go home to their homes in peace because you dying is a good thing. He's got the truth. And then Ahab does what people tend to do when they really want the truth, but they don't really want the truth. And then you give them the truth. They tend to react negatively. He said, see, he always reports evil concerning me. He just has a right go at him. You ever notice that? Sometimes people are like, come on, just, just tell it to me straight. Give it to me, you know, tell me the truth. And then when you give them the truth, they react. It's kind of bizarre. I remember this one time I was doing this preaching group a few years ago, and we were, uh, each person was preaching, and then we were giving feedback, and it was a lovely atmosphere. And one of the guys in the room said, okay, it's my turn. He said, listen, this is too polite. In my country, we just say it as it is. Okay, when I preach, I don't want you guys holding back. I want you to give me feedback, and I want you just to lay it on me. And we were all like, okay. And so he preached. And then we were saying a couple of nice things. And he's like, come on, seriously, say it as it is. And so I thought, well, I'm the leader. I suppose I should lead the way. So I said it as it was. And I said, well, I think this was weak in your sermon. <laughs> oh, he took off. He got so defensive. It was hilarious. And then someone else tried and he's defending. No, 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 you misunderstood. And he's going after it. I mean, it was tiring. Tell me the truth. No, don't tell me the truth. That's kind of the way Ahab was with Micaiah. He's like, I want to know the truth. And then he tells him the truth. And he's like, oh, you're, you just report evil concerning me. Actually, it wasn't evil. It was good. It was good news. And then Micaiah gives him an extra chance. He says, well, okay, let me tell you the, the, the kind of the backstory. In the throne room of heaven, there is God on the throne. And he said, I need a spirit to go and lead uh, Ahab into war so that he can die. And so he tells the whole story of what's going on in heaven. You think that would get his attention. No, then he gets punched in the face by somebody, and then the king says, seize him and take him away. And he, he gets put in prison, meager rations, until the king comes back from the battle. I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it? And Jehoshaphat is there in this whole kind of interaction, and it's his story. I wonder how much, in the midst of all of that going on, Jehoshaphat found himself going, I don't feel comfortable. I'm... I'm I'm someone who trusts God, I'm a follower of God, and, and I'm stuck in this awkward situation, and I'm now going to war, and it's pretty clear that this guy's going to get killed, and this is a mess. How did I get myself into this situation? I suppose there's a warning there for all of us. There are things in life where we can put ourselves into unequally yoked situations, and they seem fine on the outside. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? A little wedding, you know, a nice little meal between, you know, families, and everyone's happy. And then there's a war, and it's like, oh, I'm talking about him, not, not us. But it can happen. 
where we can go into something that seems so easy and so happy and so, what could go wrong? And then we discover just how much of a mess it can really become. Well, then they went to the battle. I and mean, this isn't the story we're actually preaching today, so I'm just going to keep moving. Then they go into the battle. And this is a bit bizarre because Ahab, who seems to be sort of listening to Micaiah, comes up with a plan. He says, okay, Jehoshaphat, you dress like a king. In fact, you dress like this king. You dress like me. I'm going to dress like a soldier. Imagine what Jehoshaphat's thinking at this point. Like, hang on a second. So they go into this battle, and, and he's, uh, Jehoshaphat's dressed like the king, and the king is kind of hiding off you know, among the troops. And, and then you come down to the end of chapter 18, and, and the king of Syria, who was the opponent, if you like, commanded the captains of his chariots, this is 18 verse 30, fight with neither great, no, neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. This must have been a weird war. Normally when there's a war, there's like arrows and there's, you know, stuff and, you know, king, whatever, the here and the chariots there and it's all, you know, blood and guts. This is kind of a quiet one where they're sort of like, where's the king? All right, so it's not your normal kind of ancient war scene, but they're trying to get the king of Israel who awkwardly Jehoshaphat looks like. Anyway, verse 31, as soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel. I'm, I'm almost making this funny. This is not funny, okay? If you're Jehoshaphat, this is deadly serious, right? Because now you're dressed up as the wrong person and they've noticed you, so they turn to fight against him. Now he's got the armies of the king of Syria basically focused entirely on him. And he got himself into this mess in the first place by being unequally yoked when he shouldn't be, right? The whole situation is a disaster. Verse 30. One was it we got up to? So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. That's like a ah, prayer, right? That's a panic prayer. And God answered. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Verse 33 is absolutely awesome. Look at this. But a certain man, don't know his name, but it was a certain man. He drew his bow at random. Like, there's always one, isn't there? It's like, I thought we were going to have a bit of a war today, and there's no war going on in this war. So I tell you what, I just feel like I'm going to just, you know, ping, and he just lets it go. So he drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel. Remember the one that's dressed as a soldier hiding amongst the others, right? Struck him between the scale armor and the breastplate. That's not the best place to be struck. All right, breastplate, no problem. Scale armor, no problem. The seam, awkward. Okay, so he got struck randomly there, and then he said to the driver of his uh, chariot, turn round and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And and then it says, and the battle continued that day. I don't know what, there must have been some fighting going on. And the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset, he died. So that's just background. But it's quite the background if you're Jehoshaphat, right? Because he'd got himself into this war, into this horrible situation. And and, and in the midst of it, it, when it looked certain that he was going to die, he cried out to God. And all of a sudden, not only was he protected, but the king who should have been killed was killed at random. I'm sure that Jehoshaphat must 
have thought about these things, right? It's not the kind of thing you go through and, and just kind of shrug. This is like, man, if there's ever a thing called the Bible, that should be in it because that was major, right? And so then chapter 19, Jehoshaphat returned to his own house and uh, back up back, or down in Jerusalem and, and he, he's visited by another prophet, and the prophet kind of slaps him on the wrist and tells him, come on, get your act together here. You're supposed to be living for God, but God, you know, God does like this about you. You've done this, and this is cool. And so in chapter 19, there's more reforms, more good things happen, and everything seems to be going well, and then we get to chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to walk through chapter 20. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Here we go again. It's another war, okay? Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is Engedi. Now, what that means is, first of all, the, the key words are great multitude, and against you. That, that's not a combo you want, right? So this is a massive, massive army, and they're coming to attack him. Where have they got to? Well, if you can, you probably can't imagine a map of Israel. I should have got you one, but Jerusalem is the capital city. That's where he is. Not far from Jerusalem, sort of, I don't know, 20 miles or something. You go downhill a long way, you get down to the Dead Sea. Engedi is by the Dead Sea. It's like you do the both on the same day in a coach if you're on an Israel tour, okay? It's not a long distance. Engedi is down by the Dead Sea. This isn't like there's a massive army and they're currently in China. This is, there's a massive army and they're currently in Swindon, right? That, that's the difference, right? That, that, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? A massive army in Swindon, army of roundabouts or something. But, but there's a, a, a massive army and they're that close, They're that close, Jehoshaphat. This is a serious situation. So Jehoshaphat, verse 3, was afraid. We would be too. With a massive army coming, and they've already got that close before you hear a report about it, that is a terrifying prospect. So what is he going to do? Remember before, he's got a track record of anticipating issues and forming alliances. His whole marrying off his child was part of that. In, in the past, we've seen him kind of orchestrate, manipulate, sort of try to mess with his circumstances. The natural thing, I suppose, at this point would be to send envoys to the northern kingdom or, or to Syria or to somewhere, send some money, send a, you know, a big war chest and say, come and help us because there's this big army and it's really close. But what does he do? Verse 3 It says, Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. This is looking good, isn't it? He's responsive to God. And now the people are being responsive to God. He's leading them spiritually to do the right thing. Hey, we're facing a serious situation. Let's gather and pray. And then we get his prayer. And this is quite possibly got to be up there in the, I don't know, top four or five prayers in the Bible. I I don't know. I haven't got a chart. But but it's got to be high up. This is an amazing prayer. Jehoshaphat, verse 5, stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, listen to these words. 
Verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Let's pause there. He starts his prayer kind of like Jesus tells us to start our prayers. Our Father, which art in heaven. Right? I just kind of go all King James when I say that prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. Why do we start with that address? Because it's really important to identify for our own hearts who it is we're praying to. We're not praying to a God who is kind of hopefully somewhere. We're praying to a God who is certainly on the throne. And not just a local throne, but the heavenly throne. This is a a massive start to a prayer. Here he is. And in in those days, it was all kind of like, I call it the playground pantheon of the ancient world. It was kind of like when you're in primary school and someone says, oh, my dad's tougher than your dad. All right. I I used to win that by saying my dad's a missionary and they would think James Bond and it all went well for me, right? (laughs) But, but my dad's tougher than your dad. That's how it worked in the ancient Near East. It was like, well, my God's bigger than your God. Well, my God's bigger than your God. Well, my God can beat your God. And it's all kind of local territorial gods. And here he is before the people saying, God who is in heaven, the one who is enthroned, the one who is ruling over all the nations. That's a great place to start a prayer, isn't it? I wonder if we start our prayers that way. God The God who is in charge of the doctors. The God who is in charge of all the nations on the news. The God who is in charge of the planet on which the terrorists live. The God who is in charge of of my marriage, of my workplace, of my, uh, you name it. The bank, the income, the, the future, Brexit. God who is in charge of anything that can create fear in me. You're the one I'm praying to. That's a good place to start. God is in charge, which implies he can handle it. There's an expectation, isn't there? He goes on from that. As well as saying God who is in charge, he then goes on to remind God of his promises and what he said and done in the past. Verse 7, he says, Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's going back, what would that be, 1,400 years to the time of uh, Abraham. He's going back 500 years to the time uh, of the conquest of the land. He's saying, look, God, you did this. And then he goes on, verse 8, they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name. Remember that? Solomon built the temple saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. I mean, that's like in four verses, he's gone back to the time of Abraham, back to the time of Joshua, back to the time of Solomon, back to the time of the Exodus. I mean, he's he's like covering all their history. And he's saying, God, you're the God who's made promises. 
You're the God whose reputation is at stake. You're the God who follows through on the things you begin. You're the God who has started and who has continued this great project. And here we are, and we're under this incredible threat, but you're the God who's in charge. And you're on the throne. And so I'm praying to you. This is a good prayer, isn't it? If, if we could pray this kind of prayer, maybe we wouldn't be quite so intimidated by the things we face. God, you have not only sat on the throne without the slightest hint of being stressed or, or panicked for several thousand years. You are the God over every possible circumstance, every possible eventuality. You're the God who every follower of Jesus for the past 2,000 years has stepped into eternity and worshipped and praised for the way that you handled everything. And now as I face these next three years, I'm trusting you with them. And now as I face this difficult diagnosis, I'm trusting you with it. And now as I face this questionable uh, financial situation that I, 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 Lord, you're in charge. This is the God we pray to, a God who's got a track record and a God who's got a heart for us and a God who's got the power to follow through and do whatever is needed, whatever we face, no matter how big the problem or how big the enemy. And then we get verse 12. And verse 12 is absolute gold. He says, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If you want to learn a verse in 2 Chronicles, that's a good one, isn't it? We are powerless. We do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. That would be a prayer that we would do well to learn, not just as a sort of memory aid to be able to quote a verse in a, you know, some sort of Christmas quiz or something, but to actually influence the way we pray. Think about the elements of that. We are powerless. Everything in our culture tells us that we're not. Everything around us tells us that we can solve it. We've just got to look within. You know, we can strive, we can do, we can channel, we can you know, tap into. Uh, whatever we want to be, we don't want to be powerless, do we, in this culture? We want to be independent and we want to be able to handle life and handle circumstances. And this is a model prayer and it begins by saying we're powerless. We cannot do a thing about this. What's more, we don't know what to do about this. Not only are we powerless, but we're ignorant. In the big scheme of things, we don't know what's going to happen three seconds from now. How can we possibly know the way through this situation, through this difficulty, through this circumstance, this marriage that seems to be like teetering on the brink of absolute disaster? We can't figure out how to advance three minutes without making it worse. Lord, we are powerless and we do not know what to do. As the doctor says, you've got such and such a word that you've never heard, but then he says stage four and you go, oh my goodness. Or, or when you've got the, the, the bills coming and the income isn't there. Like there, there's all sorts of situations, aren't there, where the best thing we could do would be to stop thinking that we are powerful and we know what we're doing and instead just go, oh Lord, we're powerless and we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's an amazing prayer. 
Let's just see how it, it plays out before we, we need to wrap up. But, but that's really the heart of what I want us to take away today. If we could learn that, we're powerless. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's prayer. So, meanwhile, verse 13, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Like the whole nation is there, right? And the Spirit of the Lord came upon this is where you're glad you're not doing the reading today. Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. Yeah, him. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for this battle is not yours but God's. Isn't that beautiful? This advancing army, you can almost feel the ground shaking as they march. It's not even your battle, it's God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. To put that in other words, they are breaking into song. This is becoming a worship service. As the prophet speaks on behalf of God and says, don't be afraid. The battle is the Lord's. The Lord will be with you. Everyone just starts to break out into song. Isn't that cool? So they rose early in the morning and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. Notice the word before. That's kind of cool. I'm a fan of that. Send the worship band first. Give thanks to the Lord. Actually, thinking about it, the worship band's mostly my family. I'm a bit nervous about that. (laughs) Just send Andy, Lord. Uh, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, that's confidence. What, What king in his right mind would send the worshipers first? Okay, you, you kind of you, you get the foot soldiers, you've got the, the archers, the chariots, maybe some cavalry, if you've got heavy artillery, if you've got some planes, I mean, send them in. The worst thing to do is go, right, <clears throat> here's the battle order, right, singers, off you go. What? <laughs> Where's our cover? Now you go, because we're not going to fight. The battle is the Lord's, the Lord is with us, and we are trusting Him. And so you go, lead us in song. And the soldiers followed, and and on they went. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. That's bizarre, isn't it? But that's what God can do. 
You, you can sit and you can plot and you can say, right, well, if the doctor says this or if this happens or if that happens or if we win the lottery or if I happen to, well, I haven't got a ticket, but maybe I find one. And we can come up with all sorts of plans. And our plans are usually bizarre, but never successful. And then we look to God and God does something often that we go, I would never have done it that way. I would have never expected that. I would have never chosen that. And yet God, well, he's God, isn't he? He's on the throne and he knows what he's doing. We're powerless and we don't know what to do. So our eyes are on the Lord. And in this case, the singers led the way and the enemies killed each other. It's bizarre, but it's amazing. And so they came and there were dead bodies everywhere and uh, they took the spoil. In fact, it took them days. They couldn't get all the spoil. There was so much of it. On the fourth day, they assembled, this is verse 26, in the valley of Beraka. Beraka, that's a uh, blessing. For there they blessed the Lord. Uh, therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Blessing to this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for God gave him rest all round. Then we get kind of the, the summary of his life, and you go, oh, that's, that's cool. I like Jehoshaphat. But then there's one more paragraph. Remember Asa last week? He seemed to be going well and then seemed to struggle at the end. Well, verse 35, after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, joined with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly. He joined him in building ships to go to Tarshish. And they built the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavahu of Marashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. That seems like a bit of a disappointing end, doesn't it? It just goes to show, yet again, that you cannot live on past successes. You cannot live on past spirituality. Any one of us, from youngest to oldest, is always one decision away from doing something really stupid. There is good news. If you go to 1 Kings 22, the follow-up to this is that then the king of Israel came to him and said, okay, while well, the ships have been destroyed, could my men come on your ships? And he refused. You see, Jehoshaphat was a man who needed to learn his lessons, just like we do. But maybe the biggest lesson of all was to learn that when you try and do things your way, you create a right mess. And it, oh, it makes sense and there's good motives and you didn't mean any harm by it. But before you know it, you're entangled in a mess. But the right way to do life. Sometimes it becomes crystal clear when an enemy is marching towards you. But the right way to do life is to recognize we are powerless. We don't know what to do but our eyes are on you. Maybe that should be our prayer. Whatever we're facing, big things, little things. You sit in front, of, in front of your computer and you can't figure out how to fix it. Lord, I'm powerless. I have no clue what to do, but I'm looking to you. I have to admit, I don't pray that very easily. I tend to think, well, I've got to be able to figure this out. The little things are the big things. 
Let's be people who pray those words because that instinct is in our hearts. That actually we don't have power. We haven't got that much knowledge either. But we do have a God who knows what he's doing.